again. This morning we are finishing, this actually is the end of this series that we're doing on the meals in Luke. So we've looked at every meal that Jesus has eaten with someone in Luke, and we were a bit thrown by the fact that the Last Supper was two weeks ago, and we're still going. Uh, last week we looked at the meal on the road to it, the meal was at Emmaus, and then today we are looking at the final meal in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus eats with his disciples on the evening of the first Easter. So what we've found in this series is that eating plays a unique role in Jesus' ministry because Jesus has a unique kind of ministry. Whereas everyone around him was basically trying to find new and more forceful ways to tell lawbreakers what they were doing wrong and how they should be doing it right, Jesus actually has a ministry of presence. That Jesus will die, he calls himself the great physician, or he calls himself a physician, but the the prescription that he offers is to eat with him, which would be a weird, like, you, wouldn't you think something was up if your doctor said, yeah, I hear you've got gallstones, so I need you to have me over for dinner. Like, that's not normally how doctors solve problems, but Jesus would say, yeah, um, have me over. Get your friends. Let's all, let's all eat together, because he had this ministry of presence, that time spent with Jesus is what transformed people and actually made them able to be the people that God had called them to be. And what we found at the Last Supper was that this was a key moment when Jesus handed off this ministry of presence to his disciples. As he gives them communion, he gives them a way to bring his presence into the meals that they will eat with other people because he says, this is my last meal, not our last meal, this is my last meal until the kingdom comes in its fullness. You're going to keep eating. Here's how you bring my presence into those meals so that you can share my presence with others. Because again, the presence of Peter doesn't change anybody. Neither does the presence of Matt. But as Jesus' followers can bring his presence into our gatherings, as we can introduce people to Jesus, we can be transformed. Last week, we looked at the fact that after the resurrection, or the day of the resurrection, the disciples still didn't understand this. And so Jesus shows up to these two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him, so he uses it as an opportunity to show them that they have everything they need. Now that Jesus is alive, they have the story of his life, they have the gospel, they have the Old Testament witness that shows who Jesus is and helps us make sense of his life. They have communion, they have the Spirit of God acting through what they're doing, and most importantly, remember last week, we, well, not most importantly, but for us, in terms of what we do moving forward, we recognize that those disciples had learned a heart for hospitality. Right? That's what made the whole thing work. They would never have figured out who Jesus was if they didn't insist that he eat with them, even though they had their own things going on, their own burdens. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the last meal that Jesus has with the disciples, and it actually closes out the Gospel of Luke. And what we're going to find is that this meal really puts the finishing touch on this shift that Jesus has for the disciples of taking over his mission and carrying it on into the era of the church and the mission of the church that he will explore throughout the book of Acts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our story and then we will unpack it and talk about what we find going on here. So I'm in Luke 24 starting in verse 36. This is when the two from Emmaus have come back to the disciples in Jerusalem 
and told them the story, and the, and the disciples said, oh yeah, Peter, Peter saw him too. And so as they're having this discussion, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send to you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Okay, so, Jesus appears to the disciples, and we're talking about this as a meal, and he eats a piece of fish. Some translations say broiled, some translations say baked. Um, I'm at the level of uh, cooking ability that I'm not entirely certain what broiled means. Um, but some kind of cooked fish. And this meal is somehow important. Now, I realize that when I preached on Easter, the whole sermon was on how important the fish is. So this is the second sermon in the calendar year where we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus ate fish on Easter. But there's another, a whole other side to what's going on in this meal that makes it profoundly important for the message that the gospel is giving us about the mission of Jesus. Um, the first question is, uh, the first thing we want to look at is the reaction that the disciples had. It says that Jesus appeared among them, and they were a bit freaked out. And you might think, well, that's, that's odd because Jesus told them this was going to happen. But let me, let me ask you, when you, if you were to see someone appear in the middle of a room, not walk through the door, appear in the middle of the room, out of nowhere, and you knew they were dead, what would you think? you think, oh, that's... Cool, he's back from the dead. No, you think ghost, right? A dead person appears out of thin air, you think ghost. Very reasonably, the disciples thought the same thing. Because they had heard rumors about Jesus, they had heard testimony about seeing Jesus, they hadn't pieced it all together, right? Like the two on the road to Emmaus, to Emmaus didn't get to touch him. They didn't even get to talk to him once they knew he was Jesus. He just disappeared. And so they haven't figured out yet what exactly is going on with this Jesus showing up thing. I guess it doesn't happen every day, and they're still trying to diagnose the situation. And so it says that they doubted, they struggled, they're going through a lot of emotional turmoil, and the reason is because they doubted that Jesus had really been resurrected. There we go. This is what we talked about at Easter, that the term resurrected, or at least that, that concept for the Jews, was a very unique concept that's different from when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A better word for that in some ways 
might be a resuscitation. Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, but so that he could carry on with his regular life and then die again. Right? Anybody who's been raised from, to life in the Bible so far has been resuscitated in that way, that they have come back to life, continued their normal life, and then died a normal death again. But in the Old Testament, resurrection is this taking on a new kind of life. This is the full restoration where everything's put back together and you're not going to die again. And that's what's actually being claimed here. And the disciples are struggling. A lot of it would be because the Old Testament doesn't say anything about one person getting resurrected first. It talks about the resurrection, but it doesn't say that it's going to start with one guy. So they're struggling with this. And so Jesus addresses their struggle with an interesting action. He asked them, do you have anything to here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. But Jesus proved his resurrection by eating a piece of fish. He proved it with a meal. Now, what is the significance of the fish? Why does the fish matter? Well, the big thing about fish, about, well, about eating is ghosts aren't big on it. Not being physical beings, they don't tend to eat. Um, just it's, it's generally not something you expect them to see. And I guess if they did eat, it would probably be ghost food, right? Like it wouldn't be physical because they're ghosts. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. They, like it would still be physical. Like you just see the fish floating around inside them. Like it, it doesn't work. So eating, eating food is a way of proving that he is a physical being, right? It's the same reason why he said, look, touch me, see, I've got hands and feet. You know, I'm not, like, I, I guess, you know, maybe back then they still had the image of ghosts that end in a tail. Like, see, I, I know I've got feet, I walk, I'm actually a ghost. I'm actually a, a physical person. So the eating of the bread, of the fish, makes that point. I am a physical being, okay? But actually eating conveys something more than the fact that, more than just feeling his hands and feet. It conveys that he's got a fully functioning body, that it, it eats, it digests, and that it's not, basically what this does is it helps, it helps us avoid, hopefully, some of the errors that would end up becoming common in the church throughout multiple generations. Because what happens is the fish proved that, the resurre that Jesus' resurrection and his mission were concrete, not spiritual. Because one of the very first things that people started to do then, and they do it to this day, is to say, oh, well, no, his, his resurrection was spiritual. Right, so the first group to say this is, we call them the Gnostics. It's a loose group of people that believe a lot of different things, kind of like neo-pagans today, where everybody has their own little belief system, but they have this common theme, which is the material world is not important. It's either bad or it's irrelevant. And so it, Jesus wouldn't, like, it's actually an illusion, and what really matters is the spiritual world. And so Jesus wouldn't come back in a physical body. That would be like putting yourself back in prison. Clearly, he came back looking like a body. In fact, they would say Jesus never had a body. He, like, possessed someone else's body and rode around in it and then left it right before he died. All these weird things to say that the physical world is not actually important. It's, it's actually a deception. And that would lead them to saying either... 
the physical world is a deception and you need to avoid it at all costs. So you should, you should eat as little as possible. You should never enjoy eating. You shouldn't get married. Like you see some, some evidence of this in the stuff that Paul argues against. Do not taste, do not touch, don't get married. Like all these things, like stay away from everything. Or they'll say, hey, physical world doesn't matter, so do as much of it as you want and go to the extreme of, of um, all kinds of indulgence. And these, these things happen when you depart the message of Jesus from the physical world and say, oh, it's, it's just spiritual. Now, the same thing happens today where people, a lot of alternative interpretations of the resurrection, people will say, no, 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 the, you're, you're being too literal. The disciples just felt like Jesus was alive again. Right? They had this, this warm feeling in their hearts that he was alive and that his spirit was carrying on. And then later on, people just got too literal-minded and they actually wrote it down as if it really happened. They try and spiritualize what happened to Jesus. But the scripture is very clear that Jesus' resurrection was physical, and that means that his mission was physical. Because what often happens with those spiritualizing tendencies is it separates us from the physical work of the gospel. Because Gnostics didn't, if the physical world doesn't matter, the Gnostics didn't tend to care about the hungry and the poor. They cared about their own little clique who would get together and share their secret knowledge, and they would rather keep people out. They had secret meetings. You had to get on the rolls before you could learn the doctrine, and, and they were all about keeping other people away. Physical world didn't really matter, so it didn't matter that there were people suffering. It didn't matter all these. And so when we spiritualize the message of Jesus, we tend to turn it into a, a nice philosophy, you know, a good set of principles, but nothing that can actually direct the way you live and have concrete, make a concrete difference in the world. So there's a lot of significance to the fact that Jesus came back in a real functioning body, is that he cares about our real functioning bodies and our real functioning world and our neighbors and the way things actually happen. He cares about whether we are fed. He cares about whether... Uh, we are clothed. He cares about whether we enjoy, like, he wants us to enjoy eating together. He wants, he cares about our material existence. But Jesus could have eaten a lot of things. The fact that he ate fish is highly significant here. Remember, the most of the, a lot of the guys are fishermen who are around him, and fish have played a key role in Jesus' ministry, and there's two really important moments that involve fish that this would have brought to their mind when Jesus eats a piece of fish. First of all, it would make them think of the very first time that Jesus called a disciple. He called several of them at one time, and they were fishermen, and he told them, specifically he tells Peter, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. Fish, the fish became a very important symbol for the church. And one of the key things that it reminded the disciples of was their mission to be fishers of people. That from the very beginning, Jesus called them to be equipped as people who would go out and catch other people for the kingdom of God. That had always been the plan from day one. They were supposed to be fishers of people. And so when he... Cause, do you think they ever ate fish again without thinking of this moment? eating it with Jesus in, in, on his resurrection, and without thinking about all these other times that they experienced fish with Jesus, because I would think there's, there's several moments, whenever they ate fish, their minds were just caught up with their commission, the resurrection. Also, there's another thing that happens with eating fish that's quite important in the story of Jesus, 
they are, they are gathering, are they, all these people have come around Jesus, and they didn't really think ahead, so they didn't bring lunches. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, we've got a problem. Nobody brought lunches. I guess we didn't put it in the bulletin to tell them this was a sat, you bring your own meal. Everybody's here, and they're all hungry. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Go ahead, just feed them. And they said, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. There were 5,000 men, which means there were 10,000 people more, maybe. You just go ahead and go get them food. Like, how? How do we do that? How do we afford that? How do we carry that? He said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. They sat down. He took the loaves and uh, five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven gave thanks and broke them. He gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Notice what happens here. And uh, Tim from PRH preached on this in this series. And notice what's happening here is Jesus said, who does Jesus want to feed these people? The disciples. He says, you feed them. That's your mission. You feed them. They say, how do we feed them? We have nothing to give them. Well, this is where they learned the way Christian mission works. We are called to save the world. How am I going to save the world? I can't even save myself. Because, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus generating the food, generating the fish, and the loaves, we have to offer what Jesus gives us. There is enough because it comes from Jesus. They're not saved by what I can do. But I can carry the food from Jesus to them, in a way, right? And so this is where the disciples learned the essence of Christian ministry. That I can't save these people, but through Jesus, we can feed everybody. We fed 10,000 people and had tons of leftovers. Seriously, we had fish and bread coming out our ears for weeks. It was miserable, right? We ate nothing else until we, he said we had to finish those leftovers first. Like it was, man, I can barely stand fish and bread anymore because Jesus is that, that capable of reaching and feeding everyone. And so when Jesus has them eat fish one more time, the fish reminded the disciples of their mission to share Jesus. Beginning, middle, and end of their time with Jesus, he is teaching them that their mission is to share Jesus. To be the people who take what Jesus has and bring it to the crowd. That's what they've always been called to do. And Jesus keeps adding layer upon layer in this, because then he says, this is what was written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now last week we talked about this when Jesus explained to the people on the road to Emmaus how the Old Testament points toward the ministry of Jesus. But notice, last time he said that the scriptures say that the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised from the dead, right? That's what the, that's what the scriptures predicted. But this time he's reminding them there's one more thing that the Old Testament predicts is going to happen. Notice that the story goes a bit further. Because now he's telling them, it says the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and 
repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. He's saying, the Old Testament has been saying this whole thing is going to happen. We're actually only about here. And you know who's going to be the boots on the ground for the rest of it? Not Jesus. He says, it's you guys. There is this whole mission that Scripture has been predicting, has been pointing toward since creation, since, since Scripture first was written. And that's what's ahead of you. That's your mission. And he uses some really powerful language here. Because he says, you are my witnesses of these things. Now, there's a couple words in Greek that he could have used for witnesses here. Now, when we hear witness, the normal thing that we think that means in English is, it means you saw it happen. Right? So, you, you know, in the, and in this country with television, we all witnessed, like, the two towers coming down. We all witnessed, um, all, all these kinds of things we witnessed because we saw them happen, right? Now, there's a word that Luke could have used for that. And I didn't write it down, so I don't remember what it is in Greek. But there's a word that he could have used for that. I know he didn't, but he could have used it. He uses it at the very beginning of his gospel when he says that his gospel, to write his gospel, he got information from all of the eyewitnesses. That means people who saw it happen. That's the word that he could have used. When he says, you are witnesses of these things, he uses a particular Greek word, martyr. It is the word that became the word martyr. Now, when we think of martyr, we think of someone who suffered and died for what they said. And that, that's not actually what the word originally meant. The word means that for us because so many Christians suffered and died for what they were witnessing to. But what it actually means Being a martyr, being this kind of witness, it means that you're a legal witness. Because, you know, you may have seen something happen on TV, but you wouldn't be called to, like, a congressional hearing to testify about it, right? Like, you're not that kind of witness to it. But there's a level of witness where you are called by a court to testify, and it is your responsibility to stand in the court and to tell them what you saw so that the truth can be known. Right? That's another level of obligation. That is another level of mission, of summons. So what, and that's the word that Jesus is using. Essentially, what's happening is Jesus subpoenaed the disciples to testify about him to all nations. Now, I'm going to make sure this stays up for a little while so you can get the vowels in the right order. Because I had to use spell check to get subpoenaed spelled correctly on there. But when you get a subpoena, you are legally obligated to go into court and tell the truth and testify about what you've seen because it's important for the court to know what really happened. That's on a different level from just being, yeah, I saw saw that thing happen. And when Jesus says, you are my witnesses, he's not just saying, you happened to see what what was going on. He's saying, no, no, I have summoned you to go out and to testify about who I am and about what I'm doing, and about how people can be changed. They have been subpoenaed to this mission. See how Jesus is laying on layer after layer, underscoring for them the importance that they are now taking on the responsibility of carrying Jesus' ministry out into the world. And then he adds this one last thing that for someone who, a Jew who grew up waiting for the Old Testament to be fulfilled at this time, this would have just blown their mind. This would have been 
one of those moments that you never thought was that you were ever going to see in your lifetime actually happen. There's something really cool that happens here. And those of you in the evangelism class from this morning will recognize it. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Jesus blessed them. Now, it's really easy to pass over that as just a nice way of saying goodbye. But the word bless is one of the key words for understanding the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Because God makes the world and he blesses it. He makes human beings and he blesses them. And then human beings mess the whole thing up. And then God calls Abraham and he gives Abraham and his descendants a mission. And that mission is to restore the blessing that we distorted. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And you can trace this idea of blessing throughout the whole story of the Bible because when you get into the law of Moses, the key part of the terms of the, of the covenant is that when they keep the covenant and they live the way God has designed for them to live and commanded them to live, he will bless them. And when they distort it and they, they disrupt the, the design that God has, then they invoke the curses. But the whole mission all along is to share the blessings of God with the world, to restore the blessings of God to the world. Not that God is withholding, but that God's design only really works when we cooperate with it. God's design is for us to be part of the blessing in the way we treat each other, in the way we use the authority that he's given us. And so God calls his people to live his way so that by living his way, we will bless people around us. The world goes better when people live the way God called them to live. The world is a better place to live when we love our neighbors. The world is a better place to live when we love God. The world is a better place to live when we do things the way Jesus told us to. We have a hard time trusting that, but it's true. If it's not true, I don't know what business we have following him. But it is. And so what's happening here in this moment is that Jesus gave them his blessing to share with the nations. Because the point was that Israel would receive the blessings by being obedient to God and fulfilling his mission for them. And the first Israelite to ever fulfill the mission God gave them was Jesus. So Jesus has the blessing. And he hands it off to them. And he calls them then to take it with them to the nations. And this teaching is carried over into the writings of the apostles. Paul writes in Galatians, he says, Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, he says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What he's saying there basically is if you have more than you need to live on, it's so you can bless others with it. Peter writes, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. 
There is no place in the Bible where it talks about you, anyone being a cul-de-sac for God's blessings. None of us are meant to be where God's blessings stop. And that's the whole reason why God calls us to be his people and sends us throughout the world. Is he's, he's laying the plumbing for his blessings. And the thing that Jesus wants his disciples to know beyond anything else is he leaves this earth for the throne room. As his physical presence leaves this earth for the throne room, is he wants them to know that that is their mission, to carry on the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of his presence, the ministry of transformation, and the ministry of blessing. And that mission has been handed on to every person that has given their life to follow Jesus, to every disciple of Jesus. That calling is inherited, and it's been passed down all the way to us, that we have this same calling, and these instructions he gave them apply just as much to us. If you have been transformed by Jesus, you've been subpoenaed. But I'm getting ahead of myself, because now what I want to do is I want us to land on the three things that I want you to remember from today's sermon. The three things that I want us to carry away. And the first one is that the ministry of Jesus is not about private knowledge, it's about public action. One of the most tenacious heresies in Christian history is the tendency to make Christianity simply about what you know. About being able to, to ace the entrance exam at the pearly gates. That is what the Gnostics were all about. Gnostic mean, gnosis means knowledge. And the idea was, I have the secret knowledge, I know all the right answers, and that'll get me in, so I don't, that's all I really need. And in fact, I'm even kind of going to hoard that. I'm not going to tell you the answers until you're part of our clique. And especially as the church divides, and we have so many different answers to the questions, we are more and more tempted to think, well, the most important thing about me is that I got the answers right. I'm the one who put the, put the Bible together in the right way. I'm going to ace that test. But over and over again in Scripture, what we see is that the emphasis is on public action. The following Jesus means doing things. Jesus didn't appear to them as a ghost and hand them an answer key for a test. He was resurrected into a physical body and he ate fish with them and he called them to do ministry. And if you notice that when, when Jesus does use the idea of a test, at the throne room, it's not, what do you know? It's, what did you do? Who did you help? Who did you feed? Who did you clothe? Which isn't to say that if you feed enough people, you clothe enough people, you get into heaven. Right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is what we're called to is a ministry of action, not just knowing right answers. Because I think we'll all be surprised at how many answers we'll get wrong if there is a test. You know, how many things will go, oh, that's how it worked. I was way off. Hopefully we won't have to say that about the way we treated our neighbors. The second thing that I want you to take home from this is that we have been subpoenaed to testify to the world about Jesus. Not just something that you might talk about, you know, or you might, you might bring up if you feel like it. It's not, something that, it's not something that applies to some people and not to others. We are subpoenaed 
you have witnessed the one thing that can actually save your neighbors. You, have, you know where the only cure is. You've been subpoenaed. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm not telling you, you, are, you have a moral obligation to hand your neighbors a tract every day or every time you talk or something like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a narrow idea of what it looks like to testify because you can testify in a lot of different ways. One of the things we talked about in our evangelism class this morning is that um, an important part of your testimony to non-believers is the way you treat, like your, your non-believer neighbor is the way you treat the believer neighbor next door who goes to a different church. Like the way we love each other is a testimony to people. The way we treat each other is a testimony to other people. In fact, whether or not you actively love your neighbor may be the make or break point of whether they believe what you say about Jesus. So when I say testifying about Jesus, I don't simply mean handing a tract or going through the Romans road or, or just talking about bullet points. It means demonstrating who Jesus is, testifying in action about what his kingdom is about, and introducing people to Jesus. We talked about last week. It's not about simply telling people facts about Jesus. It's about introducing people to Jesus. And Jesus wants to meet your neighbors at your table. And this is a really important part of what we're called to do. Jesus even says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now again, I'm not trying to say that you're going to have to be able to check a box of how many, you know, how many times did you deny Jesus? Okay, that's too many. You don't get in. It's not that. But what he's saying here is that this is at the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you find that you're just never really... Um, acknowledging Jesus in your life, in public, around others, then you may not actually be on the same mission as Jesus. How, how we talk about Jesus and his role in our life will reflect whether we're on his mission or not. And so it's important for us to accept our role in the mission. We've, we've been subpoenaed. And lastly, to give you, this is what excites me and motivates me, is that we have been commissioned to share the blessings of God with the world. Because what I've said, has, what I just said may add, make you feel some pressure. And I, to a certain point, that's okay. Um, but at the other hand, I want that to be balanced with excitement about why is there pressure? Because the cure works. Because the blessing is real. Because life lived Jesus' way genuinely is better. It is the way we were designed to be. If we all loved our neighbors, our neighborhoods would work so much better. We, we talked about it, I've talked about this a couple of times lately where, you know, there's a, government, there's, a, there's a government-sponsored thing called the Neighborhood Night Out where, like, the city will pay for you to throw a party for your neighborhood on a particular weekend in August. Because they've recognized that neighbors knowing each other better, neighbors loving neighbors, will keep the crime rate down. It's, it's like one of the least expensive ways they can reduce crime is just to get people to be good neighbors to each other. I wonder where I've heard about that before. Right, like Living life Jesus' way is a genuine blessing to the world. It will transform the world, and we have the opportunity to bring the guaranteed cure in Jesus. And so the responsibility that we feel should be balanced by the fact that it's, it's because the cure works. 
And we have something that will genuinely bless the people who most need blessing in this world, the people with the least amount of hope. We really do have the solution in Jesus. We just need to share it. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to ask you to consider what calling God is putting on your heart. We believe that when the gospel is preached, everyone has an opportunity to respond in some way. And there are some big, some big ways you can respond, like you can give your life to Jesus if you haven't done that already. And if, God, if you haven't, today is the best day to get it, dedicate your life to his mission and to his ministry. Because like I said, it is when you live life Jesus' way, it is absolutely better. It's not necessarily easier, it's not flashier, but it is the way you were meant to live, and today is the best day to be a part of that. Maybe you uh, want to be part of a community of people who are helping each other to live life God's way and to do that together to maximize our impact on this community. That's who Turner Christian Church seeks to be. We want to be a group of people who are helping each other to live life God's way and doing it together so that we can have a greater impact than we would as individuals. God calls us to do this as a team sport, and we want to be an effective team here in Turner. And if you want to get involved in our small groups or our classes, or if you want to get involved in one of our service teams, which is the ways that we give back to others, you can just grab one of those cards, fill that out, and put it in the boxes in the back. Maybe God's putting something else on your heart that I can't anticipate, something that only you know about. Whatever it is that you feel, whatever calling the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart right now, I encourage you to say yes to it as we stand and sing our final song.